Uh, my name's Max Dickens. I am a uh, comedian, a stand-up, I do write stuff as well. I'm in a double act called Dregs. Uh, we do a podcast called The Dregs Podcast. You can get that on iTunes as well and via my website, maxdickens.co.uk. All sorts of stuff on there, loads of videos, loads of sketches and stuff, uh, things I've written and made. Uh, so I'm a stand-up, also a radio presenter. I was, uh, did a show on Absolute Radio for a couple of years, which is sort of a Kenny Everett-style sort of thing. Got nominated for a Sony for that. What else have I done? I'm on Twitter, if you want, at Max Dickens. Oh, yeah, I do a blog called The Creativity Guy, which is all about... Um, being more prolific creatively and it's about sort of strategy for cr trying to make a living in the creative world um and it's been it seems to be quite well received check it out if you're into that sort of thing lots of stuff about comedy and and just sort of marketing yourself and stuff like that it sounds quite dry but it's actually a bit more fun than that <laughs> uh, but i think we're talking about that in this podcast so that will make sense if you had a look at that uh well thanks for listening uh i do a nice carbonara if you want to pop round uh although it makes me have a funny tummy. Uh, but I still eat it. You'll love it. That's too much information now. She'll stop me in a minute. She stopped me. So, Max, how did you get into comedy? Well, Sarah, I started on student radio because I, I kind of always felt that I wanted to do comedy. Like, I remembered uh, my dad having a Jack D CD in his car and I always used to absolutely love that. And I remembered seeing Peter Kay live at the top of the town on Channel 5 one night and just deciding, yeah, I want, that's what I want to do. And then so I started doing student radio basically to get the confidence up to give it a go. And I spent the first year did a um, comedy show called Monkey Tennis, uh, which was actually quite popular. But we took, I think, got nominated for awards, might have gone to that. Anyway, I had to take all the podcasts down because they were libelous <laughs> and awful. But not awful as in bad, just awful as in some of the things I said on that I wouldn't want anyone to hear ever again. And then start my second year at uni, I did my first gig. I joined the Leeds Tea Lights, which is sort of the Leeds version of the Footlights sketch thing. And so that's how I got into it. And then from then on, I've become internationally renowned comedian and street artist. And what was your first gig like? It was good, actually. It was in the Pack Horse in Leeds. Um, some pretty shit acts, are, if I remember. But the crowd was all right. And it went... I I, <laughs> I, I practiced all my jokes on um, my closest friends and my brothers. So I was, I was kind of sure that it worked. And then I did it, and most of it worked really well. And then I thought, this is a piece of piss. <laughs> and the next couple went really well. And then I went to Wakefield Arts Centre uh, to support Izzy Sooty. And I absolutely bombed. And the Wakefield Evening Gazette <laughs> reviewed it and said, Matt Dickens, sure, which is good, actually, because if you Google this review, it doesn't come up. <laughs> Matt Dickens has... Until, until now. Until now. Until, until you, yeah. So, M-A-T-T. -T. <laughs> Matt Dickens has absolutely no wit whatsoever. So, that was a blow. <laughs> that was my first uh, shit review. Uh, but if you're a fan of shit reviews, there is one on Shortall, actually. You can find that. I think the only Edinburgh show <laughs> last year on Shorter to get one star review was the Lunchtime Club, which I was in with another number of other very talented comics. That was a really stupid review. Can I just say that? Everyone, they got some really good reviews as well. I don't want you thinking I'm shit. Sat at home. So how soon after you started gigging were you reviewed? Probably about... Actually, that gig was a few months after I first started, but when you... I did that because I was at uni. I didn't do that many gigs at all until that Wakefield gig. So I think that Wakefield gig was my fifth gig. And that was in sort of February time. And I think my next gig after that was the Chortle 
heat of the student competition that I got in the final of that year. Uh, yeah, which went really well. So it's all of, when you start out, it's a real roller coaster. You're either shit or brilliant. Well, you were saying earlier that you started off by doing student radio and then you won a student radio award for best male presenter and also for your work with the Leeds Tea Lights for best speech programming. And some of the jokes that uh, you told during your presenting, you also used in your stand-up. Right, yeah. So did you find that radio was useful in helping you develop material and speaking in front of a microphone? Absolutely. Um, I credit that with actually making me quite good at writing jokes and quite prolific, because doing student radio, I turn over loads of new stuff every every week because the people I did it with just couldn't be asked basically it was a much bigger deal for me than it was for them they were great but they didn't really come up with the ideas and then when I went to absolute radio and I worked there for a couple of years as a presenter I turned over loads of stuff there it's full of content it just meant I got used to writing loads and loads and loads uh, and you just get good and prolific really probably prolific more than good I'm not sure the standard of a lot of it was that inspiring but it was bountiful and then you started working for Absolute Radio whilst you were still an undergraduate. So did you find it hard doing a degree and also your extracurriculars? Was it hard to juggle them both? It was, because I was also gigging at the same time and doing the tea light, so it was absolutely mental. So what I do is I go, I get the train down on Friday evening, go straight to the Absolute Studios, do an overnight show, go go to my parents' house in London and let sleep then go in and do the next overnight show and then on Sunday evening I get the train up and I was just knackered the whole time and it was because I had to work so hard to get the shows good and that was what my focus was then um, in, you know, a normal person there would let their degree slip but you know I didn't and uh, I got I burst in my dissertation at the same time <laughs> <laughs> that was deliberately uh, hubristic I was with great self-awareness. You can't see this at home, but I'm uh, a fountain of self-awareness. <laughs> and then, so you did very well in your degree, which was... Oh, <laughs> which was uh, philosophy and politics. And so in your blog posts, because you blog a lot as well, there's a lot of analysis about the art form of stand-up comedy. Mm. For example, you said that showmanship is about leading a crowd and crowds want a leader. So do you feel that your degree has had an effect on the way you think about the art of stand-up comedy? I think uh, philosophy encourages you. It's like an ideology of thought philosophy. It encourages you just to think differently. And I think that really is helpful when you're trying to generate materi material and, and try and look at the world from an obtuse viewpoint because that's what you have to do. You have to surprise people in what you do. And if you look at it in a, through different eyes, then you're going to you're going to surprise them with your perceptions. So it's helped me in, in that respect. But I don't, in terms of the showmanship aspect, I think that's just something you have an, an, an innate ability for and you can develop through practice. Um, I actually think uh, the best practice for stand-up comedy is going on dates with women, trying to pull women. It's the best, it is directly analogous, I promise you. Women can smell fear like dogs. <laughs> Like the dogs they are. No, they can, they can, they're not dogs. Not all of them. Some of them. Nah. No. <laughs> I can't cross the line right of... No. <laughs> no, yeah, sorry. I think um, that what you learn about stand-up is that it's largely um, a, sort of a, a magic trick. You've got to convince them that 
you're massively confident and you're massively competent but the truth is you're, you're flying by the seat of your pants and if they trust you then they'll go with it and they'll laugh i think the same thing with um with girls <laughs> is that this is why you when you're really young you're pretty rubbish with girls and girls always like the older guys because they've just got a bit more swagger they've got a lot more confidence and you trust them people want to be led by someone they trust they they want to go out with someone who's going to tell them what to do to an extent and to be charismatic they you know they they respond to that well and you've got to try and learn how to do that as a stand-up without becoming overbearing and without it interfering with your personal life in a way that damages it and writing, I'm writing an I'm writing an Edinburgh show about it. And then writing an entire Edinburgh show about a failed relationship. Yeah, <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> well, um, you've said that the first few years of stand up are about getting the cliches out of your system, and also when you were doing student radio, you said how you endeavoured to produce cliche free radio that had a unique voice. I quote. <laughs> but right. Sarah's got that from a entry for a student radio award I wrote when probably was about 19 or something, or 20, which I thought had been deleted. It's Apparently it's online somewhere. You can listen to the full entry oh and read the full entry for both Max's presenting and also his work with the Leeds Tea Lights. Yeah, and uh, there's stuff from my absolute show on my website, maxdickens.co.uk. It's all available, all online. It's all online, isn't it? The, uh, the dangerous paper trail. <laughs> um but there's more. So you also said that it's endearing to sometimes appear vulnerable and to show flaws. So your attitude towards radio and stand-up seem very similar. And as a stand-up and a writer and radio presenter, a member of a sketch duo, is this emphasis on lack of cliches and focus on vulnerability a feature that you apply to all of your performance genres? Um... I think it's easy for it's, it was easier for me to do radio in a non-cliched way because I came from it from an outsider. I was basically a, a sort of a comedian trying to do radio and I just tried to sort of mess about really and just play with the medium and the cliches of the medium. So I was an outsider in that and so it was a lot easier to, to, to be uncliched and also there's no live audience and so if it goes wrong, <laughs> no one, you know, you're not embarrassed. Whereas with stand-up, if I'm being honest... Um, it's taking me a while to get away from uh, sort of what I call sort of consequentialist approach to stand up, where you just do the whatever's going to get the biggest reaction as fast as possible. You just do that, and that's what I did at the start of my career. You can see actually if you want to go through a, all the skeletons in my closet and see just how almost saw there, saw how um, mediocre I was. You can see I did quite dark one-liners at the start which were efficient and effective, but drivel. And then now to now where I'm getting to where I'm trying to talk about love in quite a deep way. Uh, And that's just a a journey I've gone on, but I really have to work hard at it because my natural instinct is to go straight for the mainstream, (laughs) straight for the, you know, the magic bullet. And so I have to really work hard on that. Well, you were saying how your your Edinburgh show this year is, is about love and... You said that you've been criticised for not putting enough of you in your set and for failing to develop momentum due to the fact that you've been known to fit from funny bit to funny bit without developing an emotional connection that comes from the audience getting to know you. So whilst you want people to know about you in order to form a connection with them, to what extent do you feel performers should go to to make a joke at the expense of your personal life? I don't know if it's uh, about showing you is about making a joke at your own expense necessarily. 
it's just filtering the world for your perception using your own unique language and becoming confident enough to just act on stage like you do in real life like audiences can smell authenticity and it's actually it's not necessarily even the jokes what i think is that where you really can show you you is actually in the bits in between the jokes the cement you if, if the jokes are the bricks the cement is what puts that into a into a show and it's the cement where you put you in so you don't necessarily even need it in your material although that is going to make it a lot harder to steal and a lot more unique and you've also said in your blogs everybody should read these blogs they're really good and you'll find where most of my questions are coming from but you also said that um people rarely remember the message but they do remember the holistic effect and how they felt in the show so how do you want people to feel after seeing your edinburgh show this year I want them to feel like that was to come out and go that that was really funny and you know, my stomach hurts from laughing. I had a I know I had a really good time. I can't remember what happened, <laughs> but I had a good time. But also to feel like they were felt a bit moved at times as well. If you can take people across the spectrum of emotions, it's a lot more memorable and that's a lot harder and a lot more skillful, I think. Uh, and Edinburgh is a great place to do it because you the size of the venues and the the patience of the crowd they. And the experience of the crowds, they they'll go with stuff like that. Where someone like poor old Michael McIntyre playing a venue with twenty thousand people in it, I mean, you know, he's only got one option: he has to whack them around the head with stuff because it's just the the tension that you need to do stuff that's moving and emotional just sort of evaporates into Rose Ed, where some fat bloke from Wigan is sort of piling into a pucker pie and sort of downing his eighth pint of lager. Well, I think what I'm getting at is I'm saying you shouldn't really criticise mainstream acts for not doing that sort of thing because you have to play the room in front of you. But Edinburgh allows you that unique opportunity and that's what I'm going for. And I think I'm just trying to get more... I think I'm just trying, sort of trying to grow up myself as well. I, I genuinely think stand-up, getting good at stand-up is a, is about getting good at life. Just, just um, Developing as a person. Yeah, yeah. It's about sort of personal development, just growing up, like... I'm trying to become more vulnerable in my day-to-day life as well. By vulnerable, I don't mean I'm not sort of walking around sort of with a target on my bum in sort of prisons. I don't mean like that. I mean, I just mean that I'm just to be to be willing to put out my sort of um, eccentricities, my my sort of flaws, and just to be... That that Charlie Kaufman quote, which I included in in the blog, and that he's a great BAFTA podcast you can listen to. He's a screenwriter. He, he wrote Being John Malkovich. And he said, you've got to be willing to be naked just to put yourself out there. And I always thought if people find out who I am, they'll just be seriously disappointed. <laughs> but actually, if you're just trying to be this sort of clean, perfect person the whole time, it's boring, it's not memorable, and they... they they won't like you. I'm not saying I've got no friends. I'm just saying that I... I I'm Which is why you hang out in prisons. Yeah, we hang out in prisons. Well, I'm hanging out with you. <laughs> nah, just just kidding. Uh, but, um, but yes. So so I think that's... Uh, I've sort of run out of puff now. What's, what are we talking about? Well, I I, I get to the, uh, this, is, this is one of my problems in life. I get to the stage where I get so far up my own ass and so deep into an issue that I forgot even what we're talking about. What I this is this is my big thing at the moment is I make these grand sort of um I make these grand sort of quotes sort of quite poetic and sort of sort of uh, dense with language and then people go what do you mean and I go I, uh, d- what 
Where where am I? I don't know what I mean. I certainly don't live by it. <laughs> Leave me alone. Take this <laughs> take this sign off my bum. Well, um we've got it's good we've got the questions here so that if you forget then you yeah. can just well, you won't prompt let me look at them. I know. Well, I won't let you look at the ones that I haven't asked you yet. Because I don't want to ruin the element of surprise. Because no. you'll be able to hear it in his voice. And uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well no, because if I ask you a question that you've already seen then you've had time to prepare mm. where it, so for example like the student radio one well that was certainly a surprise that was unbelievable yeah, well it's all online all free to the world so um you also said in your student radio award application right. Go on. <laughs> you're going to be writing to the sra asking for it to be removed oh, no. in case something like this <laughs> this is the problem with the internet this is this is why some like Russell Howard and Michael McIntyre doesn't have to deal with this when they start <laughs> deal with me <laughs> looking deal with, this, deal with this rubbish no but he, they don't have all their early their rubbish early gigs just chronicled on YouTube and I do and I've signed release forms for competitions I won't name the competition Chortle uh, but and they won't take it down and so it's up there and I have it like family and friends sort of going oh how's the old comedy going and I'll go we saw you on YouTube right Still doing the comedy, are you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, bit better than that now. It's just so unfair, isn't it? Yeah, but those were like 2009, 2010, and they're good videos. So you can only think that you've improved. Mm. Well, I hope so. But what I mean is, we don't have this terrible McIntyre doesn't have this terrible paper trail where he did some very sort of racist material about Egyptians once in an open ad living in an open mic night in above a pub in Islington. I don't have that either, but I mean... It's probably on Vimeo. Sorry, it's not actually yeah, Max, I have it on Vimeo. You log on, don't you? So, um, in your student radio award application, you also said, you, you quoted Dara O'Brien as explaining your approach to audience interaction. Um, and it's the quote, if people want to find it, that starts, I love to involve the audience. Um, and some comedians can find interacting with the audience quite tough, especially when... The audience start to heckle so what's the best way in your opinion to deal with a heckler and what's the best heckle you've ever had um have you got the quote from dara there yeah. do you want to read the quote and then i can just sort of explain what i mean you can read it uh yeah o'brien says I-, I love to involve the audience why wouldn't you they're ferraris waiting to go off they have gold to share with their stories i think that's right i think the, some of the best moments most uh exquisite moments in live comedy are stuff from the audience people People go to comedy. They they want to suspend their disbelief for for a minute and feel they're watching a magician and feel just watching someone who's really quick, and so they want to see you work in the audience. And also, they you get stuff from the audience that you could never even write or come up with, and then it feels like a real event, a real sort of live in the moment, ephemeral thing. And that's why stand up is so great, and it's why I think there will always be an audience for stand up despite the technological advances. Um, but heckling. Heckling's a really overrated thing. So I'm sure you've done other podcasts. I'm sure people have said the same thing. You don't really get heckled very often. Uh, and to be honest, if you're doing really badly and someone heckles you, I mean, they're just saying what the rest of the audience is thinking. <laughs> and if you're doing really well and someone heckles you, you can just hammer them. And you get given a lot of rope. If someone's being rude to you, uh, you can say something pretty averagely funny back and get a big laugh. Um, or just climb into the crowd and get violent. Just smash him around the face. Well, Alex Edelman was saying that you never lose to a heckler. Uh, he's not done the bear cat and Twickenham. 
<laughs> what happened there? Pretty much bottled off. Uh, I, was, I did an open spot there when I was w- way too early and I'd just done an overnight show on the radio. I was absolutely knackered and also a bit rubbish. And I started, I turned up looking like a proper student and I started with some really uh, obtuse and sort of whimsical material about otters. And they just, th- these, it's just a sea of bald men. Uh, just they're just giving away. I went on straight after the interval. They don't have an MC at the Bearcat. They just got some bloke who looks like a snooker player who comes up and goes, "Right, here's your next act." Uh, looks looks at the clipboard. I, th- uh, op- I think he's an open spot. Uh, Matt Dykins or something, something. Anyway, here he is. You walk on, start talking about otters. They're sort of baffled, and then just start. Oh, get out, rubbish! Throwing throwing bottles at me. And so at points like that, that's, the, that's the worst I've ever had it. So the other time I had it bad was. Uh, when I did this is a, I did a charity gig for cancer, right? I was doing it for free. It's for breast cancer, and the front and the person who booked me, who was running the gig, invited loads of their friends, and it was just this front row just full of scousers who were absolutely hammered, and they just absolutely destroyed me. I thought, this is for cancer. I'm doing this for cancer. What did they say? I couldn't understand. It was <laughs> some gibberish. <laughs> and. You've performed at Edinburgh for several years uh, with the Tea Lights uh, and Dregs. Yeah. Uh, and the Lunchtime Club, I did. And the Lunchtime Club that got great reviews. It got good reviews apart from the Chorter one. Apart from that, but people won't read that now that you've no, made no, people no, aware. It up. <laughs> yeah, they'll ignore that now. You can read it if you want. Because no, they'll be too interested in reading your student radio application, which is so worth listening to. Yeah. Um. I d- I the thing is about reviewers, I d- I'm not sure if comedy can be reviewed that well because I think it's such a like a epiphemeral thing. And I think if you're consciously thinking about it and analysing it in your head, you can't be fully present in the moment and enjoying it like an audience member is supposed to do. And often reviewers just don't... If reviewers haven't done comedy, they don't actually understand the mechanics of doing a gig to a room and they ignore all the important bits. Like often Edinburgh shows get criticised because someone does banter at the top. Well, you try and do a show without doing a bit of banter at the top. It's almost impossible. Well, as Kate Kopsick was saying when she did her interview, um, for Humor Me, she was saying that sometimes, you know, they'll get someone from the sports desk to review comedy. Yeah. And it's times like those when you shouldn't really necessarily let a review get to you. No. Because a review is just one opinion. Yeah. You're right. And the bad reviewers tend to write subjectively, This is they'll say, this is not funny. Which is, that's just lazy criticism. And it's not helpful. Not helpful. I'm not necessarily they're meant to be helpful. They are doing a job for essentially for an audience. But they should and they should have enough technical knowledge to analyse why it's not good and explain that. And I don't mind that. Like I had a review from Steve Bennett, who didn't do the Chorter review of the Lunchtime Club, some other bloke did it. Um, who'd also hammered a tea light show I've been in, by the way. So you can, again, you can look at that if you want. I'm quite upfront about these things because I don't really care. Um, anyway, St- Steve gave, um, who's a really good reviewer actually, gave uh, gave me a review, and it was totally fair. He was he was very nice on some aspects, and there's some aspects which he was totally honest about, and that has actually been quite helpful because it's been a focus of me since then in the build up to Edinburgh to sort of work on what he said, um, which was coming back to uh, getting away from the sort of cliched ideas and um, putting more of you into it, and just just working harder to be more unique. Um, he said it in a more sort of verbose and intelligent way but I think I've done a blog about it so you can check it out that's what I like about writing that's why I love writing letters to people that's why I like writing if, like love letters are brilliant because you can really sort of 
think carefully about what you think about something and articulate it in the perfect way. Whereas this, I'm just, I'm just, just waddling around my mind, just spitting out garbage, really. Well, no, there's a lot of like letters in your Edinburgh show this year from your grandma. There are a couple of letters, aren't there? Yeah. Good old Nan. Really good. You can see the show and hear the letters. <laughs> For people taking a show up to Edinburgh this year, what advice would you give them? My advice would be um, to try and see it as a process. See it as... A, I see Edinburgh as a training camp. Obviously, I want it to go well, but my aim for Edinburgh is to leave Edinburgh a lot better than when I arrived. And the whole process of me doing this show, like a lot of people... Have, I think it, a lot of people may think that this for me to do my first hour is quite early because I've not been going there very long. But my aim is not to go up and win awards, it's to go up there and from doing the whole process to be a much better comedian. I, when I did, whether you think I, the show's good or not, you think I'm good or not, I am a different level to what I was. Now you may think the starting point was not <laughs> that high, but um, see it like that and just try not get too wrapped up in it. I find it really, I'm quite a neurotic person. I'm trying to get away from that. Um, which means Edinburgh's a nightmare because you just get so caught up in it. And if you're really that desperate for it to go well, it's gonna. Some days it's gonna be awful. Some days you're gonna think you're Jesus Christ. Some days, most days, it's gonna be pretty good. Most days you're gonna be tired, hungover, or drunk, maybe simultaneously. You're gonna be wet, cold. Um, if you like me last year, you, uh, you will also be heartbroken. <laughs> so you know, <laughs> I've been really negative today, aren't I? But um. What I mean is, if you, it's it's a hard slog, so you try and have a a different goal than for it just to go well. Have a more sort of holistic outlook and just have a good time. You you're going to have so much fun. To focus on that, don't stay too late in the Brooks part either. <laughs> so you're also in the <laughs> in Sketchio Drugs with Mark Smith, and you met him uh, in the Leeds Tea Light. So how do you two go about writing sketches? Um. We sit down uh, on his sofa in his flat in Camden and just talk total drivel at each other until some of the drivel makes one of us laugh. But because we've been doing this for a while, it needs to be almost outlandish drivel to get even the, just a smidgen of a smirk from each other. Because this is the problem with 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 uh, running jokes past comedians, which is why stand-ups is not actually a good idea to ask a comedian if they think something's funny. Because they'll say it's funny if it's well-structured, even if it's not funny. And they'll say it's funny if it's really, really disgusting or really surreal and something that won't make an audience laugh. Um, so me and Mark sometimes struggle to sort of... We create this own little strange world of ours of just absolute random garbage. And then we sort of... We, we pale that down into a sketch with some logic to it and then we'll edit that in front of a crowd. But it, what's good about that, and it's really different to how I write stand-up, is that you end up taking it in really unexpected places. And it's always surprising. And the punchlines are normally come from totally left field. And it's a lot better than you could write if it was anything logical or anything on paper you did. That's why I'm trying to write my stand-up a bit now. Like I'll be in my, in my room and I'll be doing a bit and I'll be ad-libbing around the bit. And then you get all these extra lines or take it extra places and it actually turns into a sketch, which was totally different to the initial joke which is quite nice because then you know you can create a whole world and suddenly from one joke you've got a five minute bit which is what the pros are really brilliant at. like someone like eddie izzard if you watch him there aren't actually that many funny ideas in his show but he just runs with them and turns them into something completely different he's 
but he's amazing. He's one of my favourites. And do you have a favourite type of audience that you prefer performing to the most? As long as it's sort of they're up for it, you can tell from the first thing you say. If you go hello and they go, eh, then they're going to be rubbish. If they go hi, then this is going to be fun. I don't like audiences that are too old because they tend to feel they're above jokes, <laughs> and also there's a lot of stuff they won't laugh at, and that they they they're perfectly happy to laugh at sort of quite shallow racism against the Welsh. But if it's anything sort of vaguely challenging, they think this is this is unacceptable or a bit blue. Uh, people who are really young, I don't mean like toddlers, but people who, are <laughs> although, comedy club for kids, yeah. school of comedy. Yeah, yeah. Um, if they're really young, like, I, like you came to my show on Friday, and my sister brought quite a few of her mates, and some of them, are sort of eighteen-year-old, they're not really seen much comedy. They just sort of stared at me. They sort of, th- I think I enjoy this, but I'm not sure what's going on here. Just not really sure what this is I, what, I don't, I'm not sure what you're doing I think I like it but I'm really not sure what you're doing I like your bow tie you're wearing but uh, just get on with it really. Uh, they they can be quite sp- strange because they don't really know the rules of comedy I think it's both ends of the spectrum when they don't know the rules the older people who never go to comedy and younger people who've never seen it before ideal is sort of early 20s to early 40s and a comedy literate audience to an extent yeah as long as they're not snobbish. I did um, Political Animal a couple of years ago at the stand, and that was a ridiculously intelligent crowd. Oh, my God. I did stuff on... I had, like, Venn diagrams and stuff I was doing stuff with, and they were sort of challenging me on the maths. <laughs> and I was like, oh, my God, I'm getting heckled about maths. And do you have a favourite type of venue that you prefer performing in? Um, what's what's a great venue? The stand is absolutely beautiful. Every every comment will say that's a really hack answer, isn't it? I don't have neurotic Welsh comedians that we're worried about a hack answer about something's not even meant to be funny. Uh, what's a great? So we're talking about Edinburgh. What's a great room in Edinburgh? Uh, the Tron's a nice room where we had the lunchtime club. That was really nice. Anything with a low ceiling, that's intimate. Brick wall behind it. Brick wall behind it. Bar. Yeah, bar doesn't s- smell of mould. The caves can be quite dodgy. Um, but most rooms are fine. And do you have any tips or advice for aspiring comics? I read a really good article by Bennett Aron on Chortle. It was the other day, so it's still up there. About just being honest about the industry and about the fact that there isn't much money in the industry and club club comedy is not dying, but it's it's paring down what it does. Clubs are shutting and I just think the best thing to do is just to be really on it. I wish I... I was naive when I started. And I had a radio job as well, so I wasn't so exposed to it. But the truth is, unless you're going to be one of the biggest comedians in the country, you're going to have to work really hard to earn the same amount of money as you could do fairly easily in an office job. It's going to be really hard. You're not going to earn money for a long time. If you haven't got the right agent or the the right booker, it's going to be really difficult. Um, so do it because you love it. And... Don't be worried that you're not doing paid work because if you just did open mic circuit and you force yourself to do a new set every single week, you'd be a lot better comedian at the end of it than a club act who's getting paid 200 quid a gig and is doing the same thing every night. I think we're coming to a a point in time in in our economy and in the arts where portfolio careers are going to be the way forward. So comedy is going to be one of the things you do and you might be working two days a week doing something else there's nothing wrong with that at all and it will allow you to do more of the things you want to do in comedy um so i'm i'm for example at the moment i'm hope, hopeful things are going to go really well over the next few years but 
I earn money doing other things that are comedy related but aren't to do with gig fees and I'm very conscious of expanding what I do in those areas to make sure I earn a living um, so what I do it because you love it get as good as you can but don't get obsessed about paid work because I don't think that's necessarily a way to be happy and enjoy your comedy or to get good do you have any tips or advice for students just in general um just give everything a go try everything when i was at uni i did bloody everything what did i do i did uh debating i was vice president of the debating team you tell argumentative difficult preachy arrogant (laughs) she's nodding at all of these (laughs) i did uh, radio i did uh, the tea lights i did stand up what else did i do uh i did i did meditation society Basically, men who look like they're from Guantanamo Bay making me do strange dances, but largely what it was. I think it was Meditation Society. There was a big metal fence around us. It was really hot. It tortured me at night. Anyway, <laughs> and I did that. I did some other stuff. But you don't know what you're good at until you try it. Like our, This is another arsey thing for me to say, but I think potential is quite an opaque thing. We sort of, uh, I was going to put something similar to this in my show, but I took it out because it's way too bleak. I think you, we spend our lives sort of in sort of looking around in the dark with a torch for our potential. And we occasionally shine, shine a bit of light on part of it. And it just creates this sort of haunting silhouette. And, you know, but the shadow is always um, deceptively large. <laughs> and um, you, I think when you're young, you sort of think your potential is some sort of amazing sort of platinum vagina on some sort of velvet pillow sort of repeatedly going to give birth to wondrous achievement after wondrous achievement, whereas probably in most areas of life it's going to be some sort of anemic, withered old goat, beard blowing in the wind, just occasionally squeezing out pelts of excrement, the pathetic side of which causes it to vomit all over itself. Anyway, good luck to you. <laughs> no, that's uh, that's too much. But um, I'm doing that thing I was saying earlier where I start on a thing and then... Tips and advice for students. <laughs> right, yes. Don't li- for the first tip that don't listen to me at all. Don't take advice from me. Um, uh, tips and advice. Uh, so I've given them some. Just try everything. See what you're good at, and just do as much of what you're good at as possible because you're gonna have a good time. Um, I'm I'm suddenly aware that that was one of the most bleak, horrible things I've ever said. So here's another thing: make make sure you snog a lot of people. If not, go further because it's a lot harder to meet people when you've left uni. I found, and I've done a lot less snogging since uni and I really miss snogging just snog 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 so you know just sort of expose yourself to criticism and uh, and just sort of em- embrace snogging <laughs>